Well, I started learning about discipleship when I was in college. Uh, I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was a completely transformative time in my life. Uh, But discipleship at that time in my life could be boiled down to really just two things, having a daily 30-minute quiet time and sharing the four spiritual laws with non-Christians. Now, those are both good things, uh, but you and I both know that that true discipleship is so much more than that, right? True discipleship is about partnering with God to bring into the world the healing that the world needs. And for much of the world, the healing that is needed has to do with justice. It has to do with setting things right. It has to do with every person, not just the wealthy and the powerful, experiencing all the goodness that God offers in this world. And so today I'm talking with Michael Rhodes, the author of Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. Uh, From the biblical concept of justice and the role of worship in shaping our approach to justice, to the practicalities of addressing poverty and racial justice, Michael Rhodes and I dive into the heart of what it means to live out just discipleship. I'm Marcus Watson, and in partnership with Fuller Seminary's Church Leadership Institute, this is episode 200 of Spiritual Life and Leadership. Hey everyone, I'm here with Michael Rhodes. Michael is lecturer in Old Testament at Cary Baptist College and also the author of Just Discipleship, Biblical Justice in an Unjust World. Hi Michael, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks Marcus for having me on. I'm so glad to have you here, Michael. Um, Hey, uh, just tell us briefly what you do. Yeah, I teach Old Testament courses in the undergrad and postgraduate program here at Cary Baptist College. Um, which is a theological training college here in Auckland, New Zealand, serves students all over the country, uh, primarily Baptists, but also Anglicans, Presbyterians, non-denominational evangelicals and others. Cool. And you're pretty new to New Zealand. You don't sound New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. That's where I've spent okay. almost all of my life um, yeah. prior to being here. So yeah, I just nice, got here nice. about a year and a half ago. And have you visit, visited the Shire? Or I, I have. Yes, I have. You really? That's yeah. fantastic. How was it? (laughs) As as good as it could be. That's awesome. (laughs) I love it. Love it. Okay. Well, here's uh, my little get to know you question for you. And that is, uh, what job would you be terrible at? Mm. Uh, Anything that, my first thought is anything that requires complicated math. And my second thought is anything that's quite detailed. So now I'm thinking Mm. accountant is the hell space that brings this to (laughs) Yeah, me too. Same, same here. Same here. I'm with you. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm excited to talk about your book, Just Discipleship, here. And so it's uh, the focus really is on discipleship and justice, or living mm-hmm. a life of discipleship um, focused on justice, revolving around justice, centered mm-hmm. on justice, right? And so, anyway, so I would love to hear from you, kind of, uh, just your story. How did how did this become important to you um, that yeah. we be just disciples? Yeah. So I um, uh, love Jesus and was raised by people who love Jesus and in a church that loved Jesus. And that thought life is in Jesus. And the way you find the life that Jesus has for you is primarily in scripture. And I remain committed to all of that. Um, that church community was also 
an old church community, a historic church that had a really problematic history in terms of injustice towards black people mm-hmm. in the South and also a very affluent community um, that struggled in a Memphis is a very low economic city. And so when I was growing up by God's grace, the church was trying to come to grips with some of our failures. So people like Ron Sider and John Perkins, these legends were coming into our church and saying, okay, you love Jesus. You love his word. Look at all this stuff in here about the poor, you know, mm-hmm. look at all this stuff in here about the other. And so that really changed my life. And um, so out of college, I uh, studied community development at Covenant College, and I went straight into sort of community development work, first mm-hmm. in Kenya, but then my wife and I uh, living in South Memphis, a low-income neighborhood in South Memphis. And and so um, that experience really drove me back to the academic study of the Bible and to this book, because mm-hmm. I started realizing, okay, Christians are waking up to this idea that, you know, he's told you, oh, person, what is good, you know, do justice. Mm-hmm. We, we, we've learned that. We've, we've figured out that we'd missed that message. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're good at doing justice. That doesn't mean it's, it's, it's easy for us. That doesn't mean it's become natural for us to do justice. So I really wanted to know what does scripture say about how we become just people? Mm-hmm. And um, that that quest kind of led me and my friend Brian Ficker and Robbie Holt to write a book called Practicing the King's Economy. It was focused on economic discipleship. And then this book really flowed out of some further academic work I did as I went back to school to study the Bible mm-hmm. uh, related to this these issues of justice to say, what does scripture say about kind of formation for um, justice? Uh, particularly justice understood as I think it is understood in the Bible um, John Golden Gay says this, your justice and righteousness is about the faithful exercise of power in community. Mm-hmm. So how does our discipleship help us become people who faithfully exercise power in community, particularly on behalf of, of mm-hmm. the orphan and the immigrant and the widow? Yeah. Say that last sentence one more time. That was important. I think. How yeah. Do we so, power. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you know, p- people always debate what is justice and often mm-hmm. we start with, definitions that are derived from um, really ancient philosophy. But if you go and look at what justice and righteousness is, what justice and righteousness does in the Mm -hmm. Bible, you know, uh, it's like Job 29. When Job clothes Mm -hmm. himself with justice and righteousness, he adopts the orphan. He goes to work for the widow. He's present to the dying. He cares for people with disabilities. He goes to court with the immigrant. He smashes the fangs of the unrighteous and snatches the victims from their teeth. Yeah. That's what justice and righteousness is. So justice and righteousness is often about the faithful exercise of power in mm. community. Mm. And so we have to be discipleship, just discipleship is about becoming under the Lordship of Jesus and by the power of the spirit, people who faithfully exercise power in our communities. Yeah. So that's what this yeah. book is really about. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, so um, you've kind of already talked about, it, you know, the, so I, I'm curious and ex- I'm interested in exploring a, kind of the difference between what we think of as disciple, <laughs> just discipleship and just mm. discipleship, you know, <laughs> uh, I bet I'm not the first person to say that, but it's just uh, anyway, <laughs> um, maybe talk about the difference between the way we typically think of discipleship and 
where I think we're being called and as you describe in the book towards a just kind of discipleship? Yeah. So I think a lot of times we think about discipleship as learning things, you know, acquiring knowledge about God and maybe um, helping other people acquire knowledge about God, which of mm-hmm. course is, is important. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like Matthew and Jesus gives his disciples the task of, of making disciples, it's teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you mm-hmm. under the Lordship of Jesus. So discipleship is not just about what we know. It's about what we do. Um, it's about how we live. And I think if we look at scripture more generally, um, that means that it's about who we're becoming. How do we mm-hmm. grow up into our life mm-hmm. as children of God, as people in union with Jesus? Um, how do we become people who walk in step with the spirit? So mm-hmm. from this perspective, discipleship is about um, not just what we know, but what we do, who we are and, and, um, the whole toolbox mm-hmm. that scripture gives us for becoming the people that God wants yeah. us to be. Yeah. And so if you think about justice, it's, it's what's that whole toolbox. Yeah. What do we need to know? What do we need to yeah. do? But also how do we become oriented mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. justice, that faithful exercise of power? And yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, I was thinking about as you're, saying this um being i was reminded of uh, another conversation i had recently with um uh, ek strasser about her book centering discipleship and she okay. kind of made a statement i want to i want to make a little hmm. uh, comparison and contrast maybe with with what you might say hmm. so she said that um she was kind of playing on bonhoeffer's um statement where she what she said was that discipleship without mission is discipleship without christ hmm. would you say discipleship without justice is discipleship without Christ. And mm. if so, why? Yeah. Yeah. I think well, I, I mean, having just heard more. that <laughs> sentence, yeah. Having just heard that sentence yeah. for the first time, I think I would agree with that. You know, in the first mm-hmm. chapter of this book, I tell the scripture, the story of scripture mm-hmm. as a justice story. And, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to tell the story of the Bible. And, I don't think that any one of them actually is capable of holding the full richness of the biblical story, but, but we definitely can and should tell the story of the Bible as a justice story, because when Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he positions him at the center of the biblical story. And then he quotes Isaiah. This one is the one who would bring justice to victory and in him, mm-hmm. the nations will put their hope. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is the one who brings God's justice story to its climax. And so, you know, I think if, if justice is about the faithful exercise of power, the story begins with God creating people in God's image as, mm-hmm. as royal priestly sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. They're called to faithfully exercise power in God's world and under God's reign and in God's way. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the aftermath of human rebellion, God gives that assignment to Israel. You know, you mm-hmm. see this, very clearly in Isaiah five, where God says, I've planted this vineyard and and it's designed to produce fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, And the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he went looking for justice and righteousness. That's Mm -hmm. the fruit that God wants from the vineyard that Mm -hmm. is his people. But of course, in Isaiah five, the point is uh, even God's people produce injustice and unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Jesus 
um, comes as the human one, the Israelite one, mm-hmm. um, where we are called to be uh, royal priestly sons and daughters. Jesus comes as the king, the priest, the son, yeah. um, who brings justice to victory by faithfully exercising power on our behalf, healing the sick, driving out demons, welcoming the poor, and um, dying on the cross as a victim of injustice, mm-hmm. defeating sin and death and the devil, uh, justifying unjust, unjust sinners, and mm-hmm. then um, sending his spirit so that we might be recommissioned as people mm-hmm. united to Jesus, um, remade in his image, empowered by the spirit to go out and live as yeah. his royal priestly sons and daughters, including by doing justice and righteousness. Yeah in his world. So yes, I think justice isn't the whole story, um, but it is central to the story. And the fact that so many of the ways we think about the story of the Bible and so many of the ways we think about discipleship, justice is conspicuously absent to me suggests that our, 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 our way of telling the biblical story isn't biblical enough. Mm -hmm. And our way of talking discipleship isn't biblical enough. And this is really important to me because I think, a lot of people have kind of gotten sick of justice language and think mm. this is some sort of alien idea that God cares about power and, and the poor. And maybe this is, you know, Marxism or critical or blah, blah, blah. But this is, this is the Bible. Scripture yeah. calls us to this. And so, yeah, yeah I love that. I love that. Discipleship without yeah. justice is discipleship without Jesus and his mission. Uh, that's great. Um, uh, I want to, I want to get into, uh, so, cause you really dig into the, Old Testament, especially um, in this book, in terms of what it has to say about being just disciples, becoming just disciples. But I, I wonder if you could also talk uh, just briefly about the way we tend to spiritualize some of this language. I was reading today uh, Luke 4, where Jesus says, um, well, he reads from Isaiah, what is it? He says, uh, you know, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in addition yes. to, right, uh, setting free prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and all this. And I think we tend to spiritualize that language. And I mm. think there is a spiritual component. Absolutely. And I think there's probably also something very tangible and earthly about what he's saying. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I absolutely think that um, this is one place where God's got to be looking down at us in our different factions and say, saying, Hey, what I joined together, let no person separate, you know, um, for me in my house, you know, I think when God liberates the people from Egypt, um, Chris Wright is so powerful on this point. He is addressing their problem holistically. Mm-hmm. You know, the Israelites have a political problem. They have an economic problem. They have a social problem and they have a spiritual problem. Right. And so God liberates them from Pharaoh. Why? Mm. So that they can serve the Lord. Mm. And so that Exodus paradigm is replayed in in all of the Old Testament, but also in all of the New Testament. You know, Mm. Jesus is Jesus talks about um, his own ministry on the cross. And and Paul talks about Jesus ministry on the cross using that Exodus language. And I think that the good news of the kingdom of God is just as holistic as that original excess liberation. It's good news for poor bodies. It's good news for socially ostracized hearts. It's good news for spiritually impoverished jerks like me. You know, it's good. It's it's 
it's holistic. Um, and, and, um, you know, to me, that's just so clear in the text that I wish the church could just hear the word of the Lord and get on with it and quit making these weird divisions between what God cares about, you know? Yeah. Amen. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Well, um, I love it. Let's uh, let's talk about some of the stuff that you you uh, really unpack in your book. Mm. Um, one of the things that was a totally new concept to me actually was the justice feast. That, that's my mm. language. I can't remember if that was your language, but you talk about the justice feast in Deuteronomy, and so maybe just kind of explain what that is. What what was it? How did that work? Yeah. How was it designed to bring about justice? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what's what. The way I'd like to answer that question is by saying, you know, we've been talking about justice as the faithful exercise of power, Mm -hmm. but of course, justice also includes just structures Mm -hmm. and Deuteronomy gives us some of the Bible's most exciting just structures. So Deuteronomy Mm -hmm. 14, um, at the end of the chapter, you get this idea that every third year you take your tithe and you store it up for the Mm -hmm. poor, for the orphan, the immigrant, the widow, Mm -hmm. the Levite, the landless Levite. And scholars tell us that this is the first regular mandated offering dedicated to the poor in human history. Hmm. So wrap your mind around that. The idea that we give mandated regular contributions devoted to the poor Hmm. begins right there in Deuteronomy. It's a remarkable, it's like the invention of the social safety net in some ways. And then in chapter 15, you have these series of beautiful laws about debt forgiveness in the seventh year. And, um, you know, they're just very powerful. You know, it, it, there's sort of an interruption of the cycle of the debt trap um, for, for um, households that are struggling. So these are just structures. Uh, but you might ask, and in fact, Deuteronomy does ask, who's actually going to follow these laws? Like, won't mm-hmm. people find, won't people just not make loans if they know that they're going to have to forgive mm-hmm. them? And the way that Deuteronomy addresses that, I think, is by actually looking at what comes just before these just structures, Mm. which is a law about what you do on normal years with your tithe. And Mm. what you do on normal years with your tithe is you eat it. You eat your tithe as a feast before the Lord. Mm. And the text is really clear. You can eat whatever you want. You can eat, you can, you can buy with your tithe meat strong drink, wine. You have this huge feast, 10%, you know, and a big feast. The And God, you can have put whatever you want on the menu. The only requirement is you got to feast with God and alongside the full community. Hmm. So you have to come with your household. And in Deuteronomy, the household is the orphan and the immigrant and the widow are hmm. included. And so hmm. I think the idea there is at the feast, you become family hmm. and you learn to share the cup and the yeah. plate with those who are ostracized and vulnerable and suffering. Yeah. And then as you become this just family at the table, then you go out and figure out how to do justice more structurally with your family all the rest of the year. Yeah. And so there's this deep connection between the feast where we become God's family together and just economic and social systems where we treat each other like family mm-hmm. in the way that we give and in the way that we work and in the way that we lend. And I think that's really powerful there in Deuteronomy 14 and 15. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it, it's designed to be formative rather than yes. 
uh, legal, you know, uh, legalistic, so to speak. I mean, yes. um, yeah, say something about that. Yeah, well, it was yeah. remarkable as it says in the text, you eat this feast this way so that you will learn to fear the Lord. And mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy, the fear of the Lord is like this holistic disposition towards God. Mm-hmm. And so you're learning how to relate to God by eating this ridiculous meal. And it's like, what was that about? The idea is you are tasting and seeing the generosity of God. You're tasting and seeing the goodness of God and you're tasting and seeing and experiencing uh, the bigness of Mm -hmm. God's family Mm. and the depth of your connection to the most vulnerable people in the family. And so, yeah, it's a form, it's forming the community, but it's also forming the hearts of the individuals who participate. Yeah. I love that. Um, I love that. Cause I think, um, you know, God didn't give us a bunch of rules because he needed to give us a bunch of rules. He was painting a picture of what a life, mm. a human life as, as God intended it to be looked yes. like is, is kind of yes. the way. And, 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 and as, as the old Testament envisions all of the old Testament law, uh, mm. these are invitations to the good life, to the mm-hmm. wise life to the just yeah. life. Yeah. You know? And and I should say in each chapter, I'm interspersing these biblical reflections with reflections on some contemporary justice issue. So when I talk about the feast, I bring that into the di- into dialogue with the fact that in American life, mm-hmm. um, people are less likely to interact with people from another economic class than they have been in 50 years. Mm. So people today who are middle class are less likely to work with, live in a neighborhood with, have their kids go to school with, or worship with people mm-hmm. who are poor than at any other time in 50 years. Mm-hmm. And what Deuteronomy teaches us to expect is if we aren't in close proximity yeah. with those who are suffering, we will not become just disciples mm-hmm. and we will not live into just systems on behalf of those people. So solidarity, togetherness with those who are suffering is at the beginning of just discipleship. Mm-hmm. And without it, you know, the ship's never going to get out of the harbor in some ways. Yeah. Okay. So this is maybe a good transition to talking about how do we, so our audience is primarily pastors and ministry leaders. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure many of them are thinking, I would like to help my people become just disciples. Um, Mm. I think what you're just describing here is one of the obstacles that we face, you know, in terms of uh, engaging with people who are not like us. Uh, Mm. We all, as you're saying, we all live in our neighborhoods. We all live in our socioeconomic classes and our Mm. ethnic communities, you know? Um, um, So, I guess for for a pastor, a ministry leader who is thinking, okay, I want to help my people lean into becoming or become just disciples. First of all, what are some of the obstacles that you see that we face, especially majority culture uh, pastors and leaders? You know, um, I think we're probably the ones who have the hardest time mm. seeing the need for just discipleship. Um, so, what are some of the obstacles? that you see and how might what, what words of encouragement or advice might you give to someone who is, who is facing some of these obstacles? Yeah. So in terms of obstacles, I mean, I think that isolation, right. That for many of us, most of our church life, most of our home life, most of our theological formation yeah. has distanced us 
from those who are victims of injustice. Mm-hmm. And that proximity, that failure of proximity is deeply problematic. Hmm. And so in some ways, a primary task is to begin to overcome that. Hmm. And, and in each of these chapters, I should say, Marcus, I really am trying to give quite practical advice. So I think there are ways that we can begin to relocate our lives bit hmm. by bit mm-hmm. to increase proximity. Um, that's just one example hmm. of, of how we could begin to overcome um, some of these obstacles. I, I think another obstacle is um, because we're not up close to that suffering, um, yeah. Um, when I lived in South Memphis, like my black neighbors who were living in a neighborhood that was decimated by racism and, and economic injustice, like the pastoral leaders who are there knowing that we need a more faithful exercise of power. It's just intuitive. It's just obvious. Mm-hmm. But if the system works pretty well for you and if, and if you're actually distanced from those who are suffering, it's not intuitive or obvious. Yeah. And, and then if it's not intuitive or obvious, to the people who write the books on the Bible that we read, mm-hmm. then pretty soon it's easy to teach and preach and tell people about scripture and, and, and miss these themes. Yeah. And so I think a huge goal of this book was to say, look, um, teachers, preachers, students of scripture, those responsible for discipling people who care about scripture come drink deep from the well and mm-hmm. see that God's heart from justice for justice is is absolutely fundamental to scripture and then teaching and preaching and discipling we just begin allowing god to problematize our yeah. unjust present yeah. and um i think you know david swanson has written a book called mm-hmm. rediscipling the white church where he basically says yeah. you know we can begin the discipleship journey on racial issues wherever we are and i think that's true for the cases i'm making here we can begin by allowing scripture to, to unsettle us. And, and, and it also can come into the way we worship. You have a whole chapter in here on the Psalms. And you know, one of the indicting things is that when God's people come together, if they worship and pray like the Psalms, mm-hmm. they will regularly find themselves praising God for being mm-hmm. a just king, pleading with God to yeah. get involved and to stand against injustice. And if they pray and sing the Psalms, regularly committing themselves prayerfully to walk in God's just and righteous ways. So when we gather for worship, we should be celebrating God's justice, committing ourselves before God to do justice and pleading with God to do justice. And and the problem is, as I show in that chapter, um, if you lean into the hymnals or you lean into the top Christian contemporary worship stuff, we've just stripped all that out. So so one thing pastors can do is look at their liturgy. And and Mm. I don't mean that in like only for the high church. I mean, look at what we're praying and singing and and, and say, how can the Psalms heart for justice reinvigorate our worship? Uh, Worship should be sending. If we're in churches that are disengaged from God's mission of justice, Mm -hmm. worship should be creating a demand among the worshipers that we get involved yeah. Because worship should be bringing the the pain of the world into the center and God's heart for the world into the center. So people are going in worship. Oh my goodness. What yeah. do we do next? You know, right. so I think there's a lot, we, we, wherever any church is, um, there's no reason why we can't begin to take big, significant first steps on the just discipleship journey. Yeah. 
That's great. Um, yes, liturgy, worship, um, and uh, and what are we proclaiming to our people? And as you're talking about that, I was thinking, man, totally. This book, uh, you could do a sermon series based on you know, kind of uh, every other chapter or so in this book, mm. Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, compare mm. and contrast Daniel and Joseph, right? Uh, and just kind of do a, a sermon series on what does the Bible say about justice? So mm. all right, just a little idea for everyone listening. If you want to do a series on justice, this is a great sort of uh, resource uh, for, yeah. for that. Yeah. And Marcus, I do want to say one thing I should also yeah. say about, about resources or ways to overcome mm-hmm. those liabilities you know, if you, if you listen to the beginning of my story, mm-hmm. our church loved Jesus. We loved God's word, but we were missing stuff. Mm-hmm. And it required people like Dr. John Perkins, a black civil rights activist, to come and show us what we missed. Yeah. So I think another thing we've got to do is develop the disposition and the mm-hmm. habit mm-hmm. of listening to voices who are reading scripture mm-hmm. uh, from the margins, reading scripture yeah. from places of pain from communities that have been hurt and harmed. Yeah, yeah. And we can all begin to do that work like, you know, today. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, uh, I, I appreciate what you say about the, the disposition of listening to other, uh, to marginalized voices, voices we wouldn't normally mm-hmm. hear. Um, any other thoughts in terms of our posture as leaders, perhaps um, qualities, characteristics that, that would be good for us to nurture in our own souls, so to speak, in order to lead our people into justice, just discipleship. Yeah, I think, um, again, this book, I, I, I've tried to, I'm, I'm a Bible person, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I care about yeah. this stuff. You know, I come from a community that doesn't intuit, you know, yeah. my, my family and I have been living in very low income communities in mm. Memphis and now in Auckland um, for, you know, the last functionally all of my wife and I is married life. Mm. Um, that's not by intuition. It, it's because um, again, Dr. John Perkins said, look at this stuff in the Bible and Hey, one way mm. you could live this out is by moving closer to those who are suffering, you know? Mm. And so yeah. in this book, we, I really wanted to say, look deeply at scripture and so some, there are a lot of voices against justice right now mm-hmm. in the Christian world, which is tragic. And so I think leaders need to have compassion that people have been deceived mm-hmm. by people waving their Bibles into thinking that God does not care about the poor. God does not care about poverty. God, mm-hmm. God does not care about racial justice. We need to have compassion that people have been deceived but then we need to have confidence to stand up and say, because we are Bible people, we can't not talk yeah. about the way the poor are exploited. We can't yeah. not talk about the way immigrants are vilified and then uh, exploited. We can't not talk about racial injustice. And we're going to do so precisely because we love Jesus and we're obsessed with his word. And I think we need that kind of compassionate courage that relentlessly says, look, this is the mandate that our Lord Jesus has given us. And nothing about the complexion of the congregation or what they're thinking or reading, nothing nothing about how much they can handle (laughs) lets us off the hook. Our Lord has given us, the master has given us this mandate. So we have to move into it, you know, Um, but we do that with compassion and with courage, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, I, I'm really grateful for this book. I feel like I learned a lot uh, from from this, and um, especially that uh, that feast. That was a concept mm. I'd never heard of before. Mm. But uh, but uh, and then applying it to today, you know, just put yourself in places where you mm. are interacting with people not like you. I love that. That was for me in a way. Um, uh, I think the biggest takeaway. Um, mm. So, Michael, thank you. Uh, thanks for this conversation. And if people want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing, where could they go? Um, well, you can find the book wherever it's sold. So on university's website, but also on Amazon, anywhere else. Um, I'm on Twitter at Michael J. Rhodes. That's where I communicate most publicly. And, of course, you can find out more about what I do here at Carrie at um, carrie.ac.nz um, here at the college Awesome. Thanks. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here today. Thanks, Marcus. Really fun conversation. Well, as I think back on this conversation, I can't help but reflect on the profound significance of the feast in Deuteronomy. Uh, that's a concept that I had never encountered before, and yet there it is. Uh, this ancient practice of gathering before the Lord in a, in a spirit of inclusion, inviting the marginalized and the vulnerable into the community, what a powerful model for justice and flourishing. Uh, I don't know about you, but it makes me want to re-examine how we can embody that same spirit of radical hospitality and equity in our own lives and, and, and in our own communities and in our churches. Uh, well, in addition to Michael's book, Just Discipleship, I want to point you to Michael's other book, Practicing the King's Economy, which Michael shared with me after our interview uh, that it might be a bit more accessible. Now, I almost don't want to say that because reading Just Discipleship was not a chore, but there you go, a couple of options for you. And of course, if you want to keep growing in your leadership and in your discipleship, uh, we at the Church Leadership Institute would love to help you do that. You can stay connected with us by subscribing to our newsletter at www.depree.org slash church. And then finally, if you found this episode helpful, would you share it with somebody you know? And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and a review. Uh, that just makes this podcast more findable for others. Well, thanks so much for being here, and I'll see you next time here on Spiritual Life and Leadership. Spiritual Life and Leadership.